Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to this word being preached. Good morning, everyone. Um, those who want to um, read from your own Bibles with me, you can open up to Romans chapter 8. We've um, recently been doing a series where we're exploring why we do certain important things and, and the reason is that unless we understand why we do certain things, we either won't do them or we won't do them well. So we've been looking at um, the, the important things that we believe and do and, and our important focuses. And if you're here this morning and, or, or if you may be watching over YouTube and, and you're not a believer, you're not a Christian, maybe you're still making up your mind and deciding, um, I want to tell you about the Holy Spirit, who, who is one of the things that, that makes Christianity unique among world religions. He's, yeah, let me, let me put it to you this way. I mean, in our modern society, there's a lot of focus on the supernatural. There's a lot of even fascination with the supernatural. If you, if you just think about how many movies are made about the supernatural in some form or another, how many books are written about the supernatural, um, and how many people are sort of fascinated by the supernatural and looking into it. And I, I remember hearing a story once of a lady who's a, whose work was, was very much supernatural. She was a spiritist. She was a medium. So people would come and consult her, and then she would sort of channel messages to them, supposedly from beyond the grave and from people who've already passed away and all that kind of stuff. And she ended up, I don't remember how it happened, but she ended up going to church with someone, and it really knocked her out. Uh, even though her everyday life was exposure to the supernatural and interacting with the supernatural, when she came to church and experienced worship, you know, like we did, and, and, and a church service, it really, it really shook her. And, and she said, I've, I've, I'm used to the spiritual, I'm used to the supernatural, um, but I'm not used to this. You guys have a holy spirit. <laughs> and, and what she was saying was that I'm used to spirits, but none of them are holy spirits. <laughs> they're unholy spirits. They're unclean spirits. Um, and, and there are basically two ways into the supernatural, two sources of the supernatural. There's the demonic and there's the divine. And Christianity is the only one who offers the divine source to the supernatural. Everything else offers the demonic. Uh, and in other words, the Holy Spirit really makes Christianity unique in, because he's a spiritual presence, he's a spiritual person, but he's unlike any other spiritual person that there is. Um, and, yeah, I mean... You know, if you're checking out Christianity, it might be because you've seen a Christian whose life has changed radically. You know, they, they were, you know, maybe one of your drinking buddies or, or they lived a bit of a wild lifestyle or, uh, you know, lived a very self-centered lifestyle. And then all of a sudden things change radically. And, you know, you don't know what to make of Christianity, but you can't deny the change in their lives. Well, that change was brought about by the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that's, that's what we're going to be looking at um, this morning, if you're a believer who's here, who's, who's watching on YouTube, I want to share with you one of the 
most practical open secrets to living the Christian life, and that is pray and obey the Spirit. <laughs> pray and obey the Spirit. If you can do that every day, it'll revolutionize your life. And your life will be so much more than what you can make it by yourself. You see, the Holy Spirit unlocks all the treasures and secrets and resources of the gospel for us in everyday life. And He's with us everywhere if we're Christians, all the time. And one of the greatest secrets of the Christian life is walking in the Holy Spirit and obeying the Holy Spirit. I mean, uh, it's interesting. I, 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 a couple of years ago, I read a book by uh, my favorite theologian, a guy called Gordon Fee, and, and he said something interesting. He said for Paul, because he, he wrote on, on the Holy Spirit in Paul, and he took every single passage in Paul's letters that spoke about the, the Holy Spirit or just the word spirit, and, and he, he interpreted them in, in depth and then put it all together. And he said, for Paul, the primary commandment is not love your neighbor as yourself, although, I mean, that is important to him, but walk in the Spirit, because how do you love your neighbor as yourself? And according to Paul, it is by walking in the Spirit. How do you fulfill the whole law? By walking in the Spirit. Um, so... That's, that's what we're going to talk about. So just to give you a bit of context, our, our vision, of course, as Shofar, is reaching nations and generations through disciple-making, leadership development, and church planting. That's what we do. How we do it is we live the gospel, love the people, and obey the Spirit everywhere. We try and um, just bring up that, that slide. Uh, we try and get into that, um, what I call the discipleship sweet spot the overlap of gospel people and spirit, the discipleship sweet spot. That's, that's where the Christian life was designed to happen. So we, we'll, we'll be asking the question, why do we include obey the spirit in our how, in, in, in what we do? And I'm, I'm going um, to do that from, from Romans chapter 8. Um, and Romans chapter 8 is a, is a very powerful portion of Scripture. It, it contains the highest density. The portion that we're going to read contains the highest density of spirit language in the whole Bible, in the whole New Testament and in the, in the whole Bible. So this is where Paul primarily speaks about what the Holy Spirit means to him. Um, so let's, let's read Romans 8 from verse 1. It says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are, who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life, or the law of the Spirit of life, has set us free from the law of sin and death. For what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, to be a sin offering. And so he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fully met in us who do not live or walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. Those who live according to the flesh have their mind set 
on what the flesh desires, but those who live according to the Spirit have their mind set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the Spirit is life and peace. The mind governed by the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. Those who are in the realm of the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, then even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the Spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of His Spirit who lives in you. Therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves so that you live in fear again. Rather, the Spirit you receive brought about your adoption to sonship, and by Him we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, if indeed we share in His sufferings, in order that we may share in his, also share in His glory. Um, beautiful and a powerful portion of Scripture. And I just want to look at it um, from the perspective of the three sort of phases of the Christian life. If you can just bring up that um, slide with the three phases of the Christian life. There's, there's and I'm, there are big words here, justification, which, which is an event that starts the Christian life. That's how you get in. Then there's sanctification, which is the process that follows on that event and takes the rest of your Christian life. And then there's glorification, which is the event at the end of your Christian life. Justification is when God starts your salvation. Sanctification is when God continues your salvation. And glorification is when God completes your salvation. If we look at it in terms of our relationship with sin, justification is when God saves us from the penalty of sin. Sancti- the process of sanctification is when God saves us from the power of sin, so He no longer has a hold and a power over us. And glorification is when God saves us from the very presence of sin, when He makes all things new, and when we are transformed in the twinkling of an eye to be like Jesus. Okay, so um, we're going to look at so why we obey the Spirit? Because the Spirit, only through the Spirit or only by the Spirit can we begin the Christian life, justification, continue the Christian life, sanctification, and complete the Christian life, glorification. Okay. So, only by the Spirit can we begin the Christian life. To be spiritually minded, Paul says, is life. But to be carnally minded or have your mindset on the flesh is, is death. 
And, and here we just have to define, because Paul contrasts two fundamentally different ways of living, in the Spirit or by the Spirit, and in the flesh or by the flesh. And I just want to define it. Uh, here's a definition from John Stott, which I, which I quite like, just a little passage I want to read for you. He says, we begin with some definitions. By sarx, the Greek word for flesh, Paul means neither the soft muscular tissue which covers our bony skeleton, nor our bodily instincts and appetites, but rather the whole of our humanness viewed as corrupt and unredeemed, our fallen egocentric human nature, or more briefly, the sin-dominated self. By pneuma, the Greek word for spirit, in this passage, Paul means not the higher aspect of our humanness viewed as spiritual, although in verse 16 he will refer to our human spirit, but rather the personal Holy Spirit himself who now not only regenerates but also indwells the people of God. This tension between flesh and spirit is reminiscent of Galatians 5 where they are in irreconcilably uh, they are in irreconcilable conflict with each other. Here Paul concentrates on the mind, or as we would say, the mindset of those who are characterized either by either sarx, flesh, or pneuma, spirit. Our mindset expresses our basic nature as Christians or non-Christians. On the one hand, there are those who live according to the sinful nature of the flesh, and they are uh, not now those who walk according to it, but those who simply are like this. These people have their minds set on what that nature desires, whereas those who live according to the Spirit um, have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The meaning surely is not that people are like are like this because they think like this, although that is partly true, but that they think like this because they are like this. The expressions are descriptive. In both cases, the nature determines the mindset. Moreover, since the flesh is our twisted human nature, it desi its desires are all those things that pander to our ungodly self-centeredness. Since the Spirit is the Holy Spirit Himself, however, His desires are all those things which please Him, please him who loves above all else to glorify Christ. That is, to show Christ to us and form Christ in us. So, the, the law of the Spirit of life, it talks about two realms of living here. And, and he starts off by saying, the law of the spirit of life has set us free from, free from the law of sin and death, which means that initially all of us are subject to the law of sin and death. And I just want to draw a comparison. If you can just put up the picture of the airplane there. I, I remember hearing a story about uh, a couple sitting in an airplane once, and um, the lady took sort of one of the magazines or, or the safety brochures or whatever it was, and it sort of gave a description of the airplane. And she said to, to her husband, you know, that this aeroplane is made up of more than six million different parts. And then she said, and none of them can fly. <laughs> but if you put them all together, you see, see, the parts of the aeroplane are subject to the law of gravity that pulls 
everything down. That pulls the aeroplane down. And, and aeroplanes weigh tons, you know, especially big aeroplanes like that. They weigh, they weigh tons. They're very heavy. You, you, you pick it up. If you're strong enough to pick it up and throw it, it'll fall to the ground again. But when you put them all together, the aeroplane is designed to tap into a different law. There's a law of gravity that wants to keep it down, but it's designed to tap into the law of aerodynamics, which enables the aeroplane to supersede the law of gravity. doesn't mean the law of gravity is no longer there, that gravity no longer exists. Gravity is still there, but the law of aerodynamics enables it to supersede the law of gravity and to fly, even though it weighs a few tons. And what Paul says is that the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, accessed, in other words, through the gospel, enables us to supersede the law of sin and death, which is like a spiritual gravity that pulls us down, which all of us are subject to. In other words, the only way to overcome the sin and death which is in the world and which is inside of us, initially as human beings, and even to some extent continually, even after we get saved, there's, there's still an old nature inside of us um, that is subject to that law of sin and death that is, spiritually speaking, pulling us down. The only way to, to be able to fly is to tap into the law of the spirit of life, into a form of spiritual aerodynamics and to fly. Um, I like the saying by John Bunyan who lived in the 1600s. He says, to run and work, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. Uh, let me read that to you again. I think it's very powerful. To, to run and work, the law commands, but gives us neither feet nor hands. Far better news the gospel brings. It bids us fly and gives us wings. You know, another way of looking at it is uh, you know, just bring up that, that uh, the other picture, please. You know, if you're going to fight a battle, you need to choose the realm in which you fight it. So if you ever have to fight a shark, I recommend you don't fight him in water. I, I recommend you don't fight him in the sea. I recommend you fight him on dry land. Because if you fight him in the sea, he's going to beat you. But if you fight him on dry land he's out of his element, he's out of his realm, then you can actually beat him. And, and the flesh is like that as well. The devil is like that. The world is like that. Its realm is the realm, the sinful realm, or sin-dominated realm of the flesh. But if you go into the realm of the spirit, all of a sudden, he's out of his depth, metaphorically speaking, and you can actually win. In fact, that's the only way that you can, can win. Now, without the Spirit, Paul says in, in verse 7 and 8, and this is, this is very jarring when we, re, when we read it. He says, without the Spirit, we are, number one, hostile to God. The mind that is set on the Spirit, the carnal mind, the unregenerate mind, the mind that is in the flesh, is firstly hostile to God. Okay? Secondly, it says, does not, it does not submit to God's law. And then he goes on and he says, it cannot, in fact, submit to God's law. It cannot do so. And then he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. It's impossible. Um, Leon Morris, uh, a commentator on this, he says, it is not simply being slightly uncooperative. It is downright hostility. 
It means being in the opposite camp, refusing to be subject to God's law. In withdrawing from God, I eliminate him as far as I'm concerned, or, you know, regarding anything that concerns me. I'm hostile to him. Paul explains the hostility in that this mind, the the mindset on the flesh, or the mind in the flesh, does not submit to God's law. The implication is that it ought to do this. That is the common lot of man. God, does, God has given His law so that people may know what is right and submit to it. But the person whose general bent is towards the things of this earth, fleshly things, the person dominated by his fallenness is by that very fact rebellious against God's law. So how can we remedy this dire situation? How, in fact, does the Spirit remedy this dire situation? And Paul tells us in in Romans 8 verse 9, he says that um, unless you have the Spirit of Christ, you do not belong to Christ. Let me just, in fact, read the whole verse there. Um, He says... You, therefore, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if, indeed, the Spirit of, of God dwells in you. So, so the way that you are in the Spirit is the Spirit is in you. So there's a mutual indwelling here, okay? And then he says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. That's how you come to belong to Christ, is by responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ by receiving the Spirit. Okay, so here I want you to see that this is the closest that Paul comes in all of his writings to defining what a Christian is. A Christian, someone who belongs to Christ, is someone who has the Spirit of God dwelling inside of them, the Spirit of Christ dwelling inside of them. So the Holy Spirit is the one thing without which you cannot become a Christian. The Holy Spirit, in a sense, is the irreducible minimum of the Christian life. In another place, I think it's in Corinthians uh, chapter 6 and 7, Paul says, you know, don't be joined to a prostitute because whoever has sexual intercourse with a prostitute becomes one flesh with her. And then he says, but the believer is one spirit with the Lord. So what is he saying here? Because he says that whoever does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Christ. So he's saying that just like in a marriage covenant, just like in a marriage covenant where a husband and wife become one flesh through sexual intercourse and therefore belong to one another as spouses, so in the gospel we become one spirit with the Lord through spiritual intercourse, and we belong to Jesus as our spiritual husband, if I can put it that way. And and then I just want to highlight how powerful that that phrase is. It says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, then he does not belong to Christ. So there's an if-then statement. Now, if you have an if-then statement, say, if A, then B. In other words, if A is true, then B is true. Or if A is not true, then B is not true. Okay? Think about it for a moment. That statement only works if A 
the ace part of the statement is in some way measurable or verifiable. Because it must be measurable and verifiable to imply B. So when, when Paul says, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ, or the converse of it, if anyone does have the Spirit of Christ, then they do belong to Christ. Having the Spirit of Christ, possessing the Spirit of Christ, must be in some way measurable for that statement to work. In other words, the reception of the Holy Spirit at conversion that makes you belong to Christ, it's not a quiet reception. It's a, a measurable, observable, experiential reception of the Spirit. I, I, I read one theologian who said, Nowadays, we say that if you're a Christian, you can assume you have the Holy Spirit. Paul said, if you have the Holy Spirit, you can assume you're a Christian. The, the reception and possession of the Holy Spirit inside of us, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, is the crux of the Christian life. It's, it's the very thing that makes you a Christian and that empowers you as a, as a Christian. And it moves us from the realm of the flesh into the realm of the Spirit. So my question is, have you received the Holy Spirit? Because if you haven't, and you're trying to live a good, holy life, you're trying to fight the shark in the sea. You're trying to fly without wings. It's not going to work. It's just going to make you frustrated. The Christian life is not something you can live without the Holy Spirit. It's impossible. So, only by the Spirit can we begin the Christian life, but then only by the Spirit can we continue the Christian life. Only through the Spirit can we be justified, but also only through the Spirit can we be sanctified. Let me just read you an, um, a few verses from, from verse 10. It says, but if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers and sisters, we, are, um, we have an obligation or we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So what, what Paul is saying here is that the Spirit gives life to our spirits despite the fact that our bodies are still mortal, in other words, still subject to death. So just because you become a Christian and you now move from the realm of the flesh to the realm of the Spirit, it does not mean that your bodies all of a sudden you know, invulnerable like Superman's body and that your body won't get hurt or get sick or die. But it does mean that there's a life, a supernatural, eternal, spiritual life inside of you that supersedes the fragile, mortal life of your body and that will ultimately overcome it. So, um, if, if Bruce says, Paul's statement can be paraphrased like this. If you... If you, are, uh, if you are believers, the risen Christ dwells 
within you. It is true on the one hand that your body is still subject to the temporal death, which is the, the consequence of sin. But on the other hand, the spirit who has taken up his abode, his residence inside of you, the living and life-giving spirit of Christ imparts to you that eternal life, which is the consequence of justification. And then Paul says he calls us to live out that new life in the spirit. And he, he says, if you walk in the spirit, sorry, if you walk in the flesh, you will experience death. But if by the Spirit, you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. So growing in holiness by putting to death the misdeeds of the body can only be done by the Spirit. Can you see that? Now, that, that doesn't mean that we are passive. He says, but if you put to death the misdeeds of the body by the Spirit, you must do the putting to death. Why do you think Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him take up my cross. You know, so often we, our, our natural bent as human beings, and, and I'm sure we can all relate to this, is to, to sort of squirm away from discomfort. And who knows that dying is not comfortable? <laughs> but the problem is a cross is an instrument of execution. But, you know, then we, we start off carrying our cross, you know. But then, oh, you know, it's so heavy and it's so big and it, it's uncomfortable and it, you know, it causes death, you know. So let's make it a bit smaller, you know, so I can carry it in my, in my arm. <laughs> you know, don't supersize it, you know. Make it smaller, you know. And then eventually we, we like, oh, you know, it's, it's not cool to carry a cross around. So let me just make it a little, small little cross and hang it in a around my neck or, you know, on a chain, you know, and, and make it a fashion statement. The cross is not supposed to be a fashion statement. The cross is supposed to be an instrument of death because there's a way of life, there's a way of living that leads to death, but there's a way of dying that leads to life. We need to die. The old self, the sinful, fallen self, needs to die. And that's what that word put to death, the word is uh, thanatu. Um, just interesting, the Marvel villain Thanos, Thanos gets his name from uh, thanatos, which means death. Uh, so, so we must put to death, but we can only do it by the Spirit. Only the Spirit can help us to put to death the misdeeds or the, the practices, the evil practices of the body. Like I can't remember whether it was A.W. Tozer or one of the other writers who said this. He said, kill your sin or your sin will kill you. That is the biggest battle that, we've, that we face and that we fight. We must execute our sin or our sin will execute us. We must kill our sin or our sin will kill us. But the good news is that we are not alone in our opposition to sin and our fight against sin. The Holy Spirit is with us, and He helps us, and He's the only one that can give us the power to do it. And then in verse 14, uh, Paul says, whoever is led by the Spirit of God, and he literally says everyone who is led by the Spirit of God is a son of God. 
the crux of being a, a son of God is, is being led by the Spirit. And, and I think Paul he intentionally uses son, even though he's talking to men and women. You know, ladies, this is not a sexist statement. If, if we as men can be part of the bride, which is feminine, then you as ladies, spiritually speaking, can be sons, which is masculine. And the reason for that is he's going to talk later on about heirs, being heirs and co-heirs. And in those days, uh, in the Jewish culture and in the Greco-Roman culture, only men inherited. But God, from the very beginning, treated his people, whether they're male or female, the same, as adopted sons who have a full inheritance. And not just a full inheritance, but Christ's inheritance. So there are only two options. He says, now notice here, he says, whoever, everyone who is led by the Spirit of God is a child of God, is a son of God. In other words, being led by the Spirit of God is not just something that special, super spiritual Christians do. This is basic entry-level Christianity to be led by the Spirit of God. And you only have two options. You're either led by the Spirit or you're led by the flesh. You either obey the Spirit or you obey the flesh. Those are the only two options. And Paul says, if you want to live the Christian life, you must obey the Spirit. Uh, and, and the Holy Spirit, as we read in the previous verse, as we obey me, empowers us to overcome sin in our lives and to live holy lives. But he also empowers us to witness I mean, think of Acts 1 verse 8 where, where, where Luke, Luke writes or records Jesus as saying, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And when we read at the end of Acts chapter 2 about how that witness looks, it includes two things. It includes the gifts, tongues, prophecy, healing, all kinds of supernatural miracles and so on, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit. They loved one another. They gave their possessions to take care of one another. They were patient with one another. They were, they were kind to one another. They, they just took care of one another. So the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit is included in being led by the Spirit, obeying the Spirit. And both of them show that you are a child of God, um, the, the gifts are, are sort of more instantaneous, more short-term proof. The fruit is more long-term proof. Gifts are given, fruit is grown. So fruit you'll only see progressively long-term in your life, but the gifts you'll see more immediately. And in other words, what Paul is saying, we receive the spirit of adoption, and it makes us part of God's family. And he enables us and empowers us to have that family resemblance to look like Jesus, to look like the Father. Only the Spirit, according to um, verse 15, enables us to experience childlike intimacy with the Father. Says for, verse 14 says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. And that's a, a very powerful uh, passage. According to Leon Morris, the Greek word for adoption as sons, huiothesia, is a useful word for Paul, for it signifies being granted the full rights and privileges of sonship in a family to which one does not belong by nature. This is a good illustration 
uh, of one aspect of Paul's understanding of what it means to be a Christian. The believer is admitted into the heavenly family to which he has no rights of his own, but he is now admitted and uh, through the gospel and through the spirit um, of adoption and can call God Father. If Bruce reminds us that we must interpret the implications of this adoption not in terms of contemporary culture, what we understand of modern adoption, but um, of the Greco-Roman culture in Paul's day, he writes, the term adoption may, sound, may have a somewhat artificial sound in our ears, but in the Roman world of the first century AD, an adopted son was a son deliberately chosen by his adoptive father to perpetuate his name and inherit his estate. He was, no, um, uh, he was not in the smallest degree inferior in status to a son born in the ordinary course of nature and might well enjoy the father's affection more fully and reproduce the father's character more worthily. We're adopted into sonship. And then he says, and the spirit of adoption causes us to cry out, Abba, Father. And, and, and that is so beautiful. If you go and look for the phrase Abba, Father, you'll find it three times in the New Testament here in Romans 8, verse 15. You'll also find it in Mark chapter 14. I think it's verse 36 where Jesus is pray, praying in the garden of Gethsemane. And he prays and he says, Abba, Father, if it's at all possible, let this cup be taken from me. And the other place is in Galatians chapter 4. And beginning of Galatians chapter 4, I think it's verse 6, where he says the Spirit causes us to say, Abba, Father. Now, it's interesting that clearly Paul gets this from the way Jesus prayed. Abba is the Aramaic word, and then it's, it's translated in Greek, patros, or pater, father, father and Jesus said it and even when the gospel is translated from Aramaic into Greek they still keep the phrase Abba just like we kept Hallelujah or Amen which are both also Aramaic words because they were used so often and it's interesting that Paul assumes in fact the, the word is so commonly used in Christianity of Paul's time, that Paul assumes that even this Roman church, I mean, the Galatian churches that he writes to in Galatians 4, when he uses the word Abba, he knew those churches because he planted those churches, but Paul didn't plant a church in Romans, in, in Rome. Someone else planted that church. Paul is just writing to them. He's never even been to Rome. And yet, he can assume that they will understand exactly what he means when he uses the word Abba. Now, the word Abba um, is an interesting word. It's, 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 it means father, but it also, it's, it's like papa. You know, when, when little children are just learning to speak, they don't have teeth yet. So they, can, they cannot make like T or S sounds, you know, where they need teeth to make the sound, you know. So all the words, dada, papa, abba, are all words that you can say without teeth, okay? So, so, so it, it but, but then it, it was also used, it wasn't just used by little children, but it was also used, Abba was also used by adult children as a term of respectful reference, intimate but respectful reference to their fathers. And, and, and that is what Paul says, the Holy Spirit causes us, us to come not in slave-like fear to the Father, but in child-like faith to the Father, and to Notice it says, doesn't say say, Abba, Father, but cry out, 
Abba Father with a boldness that only little children can have. The conviction, the desperation sometimes that only little children can have. Can you see the intimacy with the Father that the Holy Spirit brings into our lives and empowers in our lives? You want that intimacy? You want that childlike faith and intimacy with the Father? Only the Holy Spirit can give it to you. And then he, he um, goes on and he says in verse 16 that the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirits that we are children of God. In other words, only the Holy Spirit can give us the ultimate assurance of faith. Assurance that we really are God's children. In, in the Old Testament it says by two or three witnesses every matter is established. Okay, well, the same in terms of the assurance of our salvation. Our spirit testifies, the Holy Spirit testifies with our spirit that we are God's children, and it's established in our lives. And then, and I'm going to make this a bit shorter because I'm, uh, I'm out of time. Only the Holy Spirit, only by the Spirit can we complete the Christian life. Only through the Holy Spirit can we be, be glorified. In, in verse 11, it says, If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His, His Spirit who dwells in you. And what Paul is saying here is that the Holy Spirit, what the Holy Spirit did for Jesus, He will do for us. What the Holy Spirit did for Jesus, He, he will do for us. Now, yes, our bodies are mortal, they're subject to death but it will not always be so. There will come a time when we see Jesus and in the twinkling of an eye, I change to become like Him. Where our mortal bodies, even though they may be dead, will be given new life, be resurrected, and we have new glorified bodies. But those glorified bodies will not only no longer be dead, they will no longer be able to die. They will no longer be mortal, they will be immortal no longer subject to death. That is what the Holy Spirit is going to do uh, for us. Um, the Holy Spirit also enables us, if, I'm, I'm not going to read it now, but if you go and read in verse 22 to 25 of Romans 8, it, it talks about when you hope for something, you patiently wait for it. And the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to patiently wait for that which we hope for the completion of our salvation, the consummation of our salvation, to become fully like Jesus. Um, it also says that the Spirit is the first fruit. We will receive the first fruit of the Spirit. Um, the first fruit is, is, is a term of, of agriculture, harvest. The first fruit of the harvest is the first portion of the harvest that comes in that, in a sense, promises the full harvest. And, and what he's saying is that the Holy Spirit is the first fruit of our inheritance in Christ. He is the promise that everything else will ultimately be given. In a sense, also the guarantee that everything else will be given. And when we experience the Holy Spirit, we're reminded that God will finish what He has started in us. He will perfect that which concerns us. And then, then Paul goes on and, and, he, and he says... Um, we are not only heirs, but we are co-heirs with Christ. The Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to receive our inheritance. Now, what it means when it says we are co-heirs with Christ is that Christ has shared His entire inheritance with us. 
we, through our sin and our fallenness, had squandered our inheritance like the younger brother in the parable of the prodigal son. But unlike the older brother who did not want to share his inheritance with the younger brother, because everything that was left belonged to the older brother, Jesus says, no, even though my younger brothers and sisters squandered their inheritance, I'm going to share my whole inheritance with all of them. Everything that is mine, I give to them through the Spirit. And the Spirit is the one who enables us to receive that inheritance. Do you realize that God has so much more for you than you've currently received? And that the only way to receive it is through His Spirit. And then He also goes on and He says, if we suffer with Him, that we might also be glorified with Him. So the Holy Spirit also helps us complete our salvation by enabling us to suffer well. Enabling us to suffer well. I remember um, watching a teaching on, on parenting and, and the, the guy was saying, you know, we, we, just like we avoid discomfort and suffering, we want to shield those we love from discomfort and suffering. And he says, especially with our children, we want, to, we want to shelter them and shield them from discomfort and suffering. But he says, you can't. And in fact, it, it's harmful to, to only do that the whole time. What, what's, what the better thing that we should do is to teach our children to suffer well, because they will suffer. They will suffer. You see, Christ didn't suffer so that we wouldn't suffer, but so that when we do suffer, we become more like Him. And the Holy Spirit is the one who enables us to suffer with Christ, that we might be glorified with Christ and become more like Christ. Okay, so why obey the Spirit? Because the Spirit, it's only by the Spirit that we can begin, continue, and complete the Christian life. And I just want to give you a, a practical tip here. Just notice how important prayer is in this. It talks about only by the Spirit can we desire God's will and therefore pray God's will in verse 5 to 7. It is usually as we pray that we are led by God's Spirit. Verse 14, those who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. The Spirit of God are the sons of God. Only by the Spirit can we truly call on the Father in childlike prayer. Abba, Father. And only by the Spirit can we pray effectively according to God's will. It talks about the Spirit making intercession for us. And when I was speaking about the gospel, I said you must learn the gospel in order to live the gospel. When I was speaking about loving people, I said you must listen well, listen in order to love people. Well, now I'm telling you, if you want to obey the Spirit, you must pray in order to obey the Spirit. The more you pray, the more you'll be able to obey the Spirit. And just remember this, the, the Holy Spirit is with you all the time. Everywhere you are. He's the smartest, most powerful person on earth, bar none. He knows more about your job than you do. You're sitting there struggling with code, pray to the Holy Spirit, ask Him to help you. He knows more about relationships than you do. Is there conflict in, in, your, in a friendship or in your marriage or with your children? Ask the Holy Spirit to help you. He knows more about everything in our lives than we do, and He's more powerful and He can help us with everything in our lives. And He's with us everywhere in our lives. What better person to follow? What better person 
to obey? What better person to have with you to help you? And if you regularly pray, you'll be sensitive to the Holy Spirit and He'll lead you and you'll be able to obey Him and He'll make your life so much better and so much more God-glorifying in every aspect of your life. And who does not want a life like that? Right? Let's stand. Just close your eyes for a moment and just focus on the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning or, you know, if you're watching on YouTube and, and maybe you maybe you don't know God, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you, you tried Christianity before, but you tried it in your own strength. You tried to obey God, but not in the spirit, in the, but in the flesh, in your own strength. And, and it maybe frustrated you, and maybe you say to, to people, ah, you know, I, I tried this Christian thing, it doesn't work for me. And, and maybe now you realize why it didn't work for you, because you actually, Christianity is not something you can try. It's, it's not, because it's not primarily something that you do, it's, it's primarily something that is done to you. And maybe you realize you were trying in the flesh, rather than in the Spirit. If that's you, I just wanna, I'm, I'm going to pray a prayer, and I'm, I want to invite you to just pray with me right there where you are. Father God, I come to you in Jesus' name, and I thank you, Lord, that you made a way for us to live lives that are pleasing to you. And Lord, I'm sorry that in the past I tried in my own strength to please you in. Lord, as I now realize, I, I, I cannot possibly do that. Please forgive me for trusting in myself. Please forgive me for trying to save you, to save myself. Try, please forgive me for trying to please you, but with a heart that is hostile to you and that cannot submit to your law and that cannot please you. But I pray, Lord, that, Lord Jesus, that, that you'll come and save me. Thank you, Lord, that you that you gave your life, that you suffered on the cross before you were glorified so that we, through your suffering, can be saved and eventually also glorified. And Lord Jesus, I believe that you suffered and died for me. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that you'll come and save me, that you'll give me your spirit and help me to walk in the spirit, to live in the spirit, to set my mind on the things of the Spirit, and to live a life pleasing to you in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening to this message from Shofar Joburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.joburg.com.